Hey, college football fans. That's right. Glory, hail to Georgia. Special shout out to all you dog fans. Congrats on your first national championship in 41 years. That's right. Not since old Chappie here was born in 1980 have the Georgia Bulldogs taken home college football's biggest prize. We did it last night. Beat Nick Saban. Sick of baby. Congratulations, national champions. Uh, Sully, I know that that's a little bit of salt in the wound, but I also know that you are an appreciator of college football and you are someone who can give respect when respect is due. So sorry about your tide last night, but I don't know about you guys. I was entertained by the game overall. Some people said how boring the first half was, but I was entertained with with all of it, especially in that second half. Maybe not the outcome that uh, some people wanted to see, but uh I'm never going to complain about college football, especially when it's the last game of the season. I don't think that any fan has any room for gripe. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here. And thank you all listeners for for being with us on really the last regular season episode of College Football Impact here on the CFP podcast. I'm Chappie here in Michigan. We're joined by Mike Waxman in Columbus, Ohio, Pat Sullivan in Boston, Massachusetts, and... Fellas, quick thoughts, what your takeaway is from last night before we get deeper in in segment two. Uh, Just a sentence or two. What did did you think about last night's game, Wax? Um, I'm like you. I enjoyed it, yeah. It was a little bit of a grind in the first half, but it picked up in the second, and I'm with you. The folks who said it was boring, people are so conditioned to seeing these high-scoring shootouts anymore that when there's a defensive-oriented game, it automatically gets labeled boring. It was drama. There was never more than a one-touchdown lead until the pick six at the end of the game. So I thought that it was a uh, it was a good game, pretty entertaining in the second half, and there was a lot of hitting going on and a nice underdog story, so to speak. For sure. Yep. Uh, slight pun intended there, I'm sure. Sully, uh, again, I know it wasn't the the outcome you wanted, but um, you know your your quick takeaway from from last night's game, either from an overall perspective or even as the Bama fan. Yeah, you know what? It, it may not have been uh, another Alabama national title, but that might go down as one of my favorite national championships that I've seen in a long time. Just the way that both teams just really fought to the very end. I mean, we've seen some of these national championships where you watch and you can kind of tell early on which team's going to have the momentum and, and turn this thing. And, and last night, there was so many momentum, ter- momentum turns, right? From Alabama with, with Brian Robinson running down the field, then all of a sudden there's a block kick. You know, then George is doing some good things, and all of a sudden there's a turnover. I mean, it was just the ebbs and flows of that game were just insane. And and I enjoyed literally every snap. And I think I texted you guys at one point. I said, Alabama is literally fighting tooth and nail for every single yard they're getting tonight. And that's what yeah. they had to do against Georgia. And, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it was tough to, uh, to see Bryce Young and, and Will Anderson play as hard as they did and, and come up on the losing end. But, if you guys paid attention to when Nick Saban met up with Kirby Smart at the very end of the game and he was all smiles and congratulated Kirby and said, you kicked our ass in the fourth quarter, yeah. he knows, right? I mean, he knows that Georgia was the better team last night. They were more physical and uh, and they er- they deserved it. They earned it and congrats to a national championship. But, you know, listen, just because I'm a fan of Alabama doesn't mean I don't appreciate what Georgia did last night and uh, and hats off to them. That was, that was one hell of a game to watch. I enjoyed every single minute of that game. Yep. For sure, for sure. And, um, you know, no coach likes losing, but if you're going to lose, it's it's nice to know that you, somebody that you helped bring up and groom and, and somebody who was a part of your culture was the one who beat you as opposed to somebody who might be roaming the sidelines at Jordan-Hare. So, um, all right, well, let's get to news and notes. So just some, some quick things from this past week, and we'll start with player and personnel. So Transfer Portal, as always, is active. Uh, some key departures. Jackson Dart is into the portal uh, from USC quarterback. Uh, other names, two two surprises from Army, Tyrell Robinson and Isaiah Alston, their best running back, their best wide receiver, both into the portal, which I kind of scratched my head at. I didn't think it was that easy for someone in one of the academies to, to leave the academy and, and put themselves in the portal there. D-tackle Nesta Jade Silvera from Miami, uh, Miami of Florida, that is. Arkansas cornerback Greg Brooks, and then um, uh, kind of a surprise to me, and all accounts are that he might be following Billy Napier to Florida, but Montrell Johnson, who was in some people's minds the Sunbelt freshman of the year running back from Louisiana, put his name in the portal, 
and likely that he might go out to Gainesville and, and join that running back room under new coach Billy Napier. Arrivals, uh, players who are now at a new location. John Rice Plumley leaves Ole Miss and is now going to be with Gus Malzahn at UCF. Other quarterbacks that have landed at places, Jaden Delora, uh, about a week ago, left Washington State, and he is now at Arizona. Taking his place, presumably, is Cameron Ward, who played at Incarnate Word. He's now going to be at Wazoo. Christian Beal Smith goes from Wake Forest to South Carolina, running back. Brandon Joseph, safety from Northwestern, heads to Notre Dame. Um, and then uh, another interesting one I saw, Alan Ali, who is a multi-year starter at tackle for SMU. He's leaving to go to the other side of the iron skillet and play at TCU. So, uh, and then uh, another one here that jumps out to me is TD Roof, a star linebacker at App State, really their number two tackler behind DeMarco Jackson. He's going to Norman, Oklahoma uh, to play for new head coach Brent Venable. So those are some of the key departures and arrivals. Guys, did I miss anybody or is there any, any name that jumps out at you that you want to put an asterisk next to? Yes, as of today, about an hour ago, Jaleel Billingsley from Alabama. Oh, he's in the portal. Okay. He, he and, and backup offensive lineman Tommy Brown, who I thought they figured maybe was going to vie for a starting role next year, both of those guys are in the portal. So Billingsley will probably be coveted for a school that uses the tight end in the passing game. Yeah, well, he, it seems like he leaves Saban's doghouse and goes into the portal. Although, yes. um, I mean, Saban, it's well documented. I mean, he, he doesn't put up with anybody who's not going to be, you know, his way and go through the process. And it sounds like Billingsley kind of cleaned up his act toward the end of the season, but maybe uh, some bridges were burned and he feels that uh, with the talent that they've got coming in, maybe his, his chances might be better and a, a fresh start somewhere else. Real but, quick, Chapia, I, I'll tell you what, we're going to have to have uh... – you know, one of our media guide friends to start the season next year with us because I'm not going to know who the hell is on what team, who's coaching, what players, what players right. transferred, what players didn't transfer. I mean, correct. I think aside from maybe the guys who saw on the field last night and probably the guys at Ohio State, they, every single team's going to have massive turnovers because of this, because of the NIL, because of transfers, because of coaching changes. I mean, you get guys who committed to a school and then before they even step foot on campus, their coach is already gone and, and went across the country, so they're transferring somewhere else. I mean, you know, go back to uh, two months ago where Kirk Herbstreit saying that Caleb Williams is going to be the face of college football for the next three years, like Trevor Lawrence was. Now he's changing schools. I mean, we're going to have to have, you know, somebody from Lindy's or, or one of those guys come on and just kind of go through an hour of, hey, by the way, do you know this guy's now the quarterback here? Because we're not going to know. It's going to be crazy next year. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you, we, we could literally do a weekly podcast sh- segment um, and a whole hour show just highlighting the guys who – are in the portal, guys who have uh, gone back to the school that they left. Guys I don't like it, Chappie. I'm not here for it. I don't like it either, yeah. So, um, I, I mean, that's not something that I want to highlight and, uh, and and make it sound like it's a wonderful, great thing. I think it will eventually regress back to the mean, but right now, and especially now that the, the national championship is done, this week and this weekend, um, it's going to be a buzz, and this portal is going to light up like never before, in my opinion. So, uh, some coaching news and some coaching moves – this is an interesting one, fellas. West Virginia has hired Graham Harrell as their offensive coordinator. Now, my first thought is, is he likely being groomed as the next head coach? Because this is kind of a make or break it year for Neil Brown. I think if Brown doesn't get eight or more wins in Morgantown, he may be on his way out and they may be uh, testing the waters with Graham Harrell to bring in the air raid and kind of bring back the uh, the Dana, Hol- Dana Holgerson slash uh, Rich Rodriguez era before him where they were kind of slinging it around a little bit more. Not that they're not doing that with Neil Brown, but certainly not to the, uh, the number of wins that they did under Hogo and, uh, and Rich Rod. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that hire? I, I thought that was interesting myself. I didn't really think of it that they were grooming, but then you make a good point. Brown, I think in has had a little bit more expected of West Virginia and if I'm not mistaken, I thought that Jarrett Dagey went into the portal too a while back. So they, yep. they may not have an established QB. So maybe this will be a good chance to kind of start over and just say, you know what? If you can run, you can take a guy like a Keaton Slovis and just run an air raid. As long as they can get the ball out quick, you can win that way. So it, it'll be a very interesting experiment, I think, especially since the offense is going to have to be retooled. And um, on that note, Jackson Dart 
is in the portal and his offensive coordinator was Graham Harrell. I wonder how hard he's going to try and bring and recruit Dart to come out to Morgantown because I think that, I mean, it's, it's no secret that West Virginia and the Big 12 is a slight step down, if not a lateral move at best from USC and the Pac-12. So that could be a, a prime opportunity for Dart to uh, really throw out some big numbers and play for a, a, a skilled OC. Yep. Um, Sully, one of your uh, former D coordinators, Tosh Lupoy, who spent the last three years as the D-line coach with the Jacksonville Jaguars, with that staff being blown up, he is now coming to be the D coordinator for Dan Lanning at Oregon. So I thought that that was an interesting hire. And Lupoy is also known as uh, a, a pretty good recruiter as well, which Oregon hasn't seemed to have too much problem getting players to come out to Eugene, but now having Dan Lanning and his pedigree from Georgia, but Lupoy and what he did at Alabama and his NFL experience, I think that that's a good move for the Ducks there. I tell you what, anything Dan Lanning is doing right now is turning to gold. So if that's the guy that he wants to bring out there, then there must be something pretty special there because what I saw uh, last night, everything I heard from what, you know, Kirby and the players had to say about him, that guy, uh, that guy pretty much walks on water in college football right now. So if that's a guy that you brought out there, then I get no choice but to say that's the right hire at this point. And he does have Pac-12 experience. He was the D-line coach at Cal and then Washington, all this in the early 2010. So um, again, last three seasons in the NFL, but he certainly has the experience. A couple other uh, things of note. Colin Klein was the interim OC for Kansas State in their bowl game. They won. They looked good. And he is, you know, one of the heroes of that program. He has been promoted to full-time offensive coordinator. So good, good things for Colin Klein under coach Chris Kleiman. Uh, Minnesota has gone with D-line coach Chad Wilt. Um, or I'm sorry, former uh, Minnesota D-line, D-line coach Chad Wilt is now the defensive coordinator Indiana because Charlton Warren, who was there for one year, is now the DC or co-DC at North Carolina with Gene Chizik. That's a name that most people remember because Jay Bateman was let go earlier in the week. And Wax, you and I were talking off air. Uh, actually, all three of us were about how uh, how baffled we were that Jay Bateman's defenses have not performed up to par in, in Chapel Hill, Wax. Yeah, they they haven't. And, and the athletes were there. I didn't watch enough of North Carolina to know if it was scheme, if it was inexperience, but they just, they, they had to outscore everybody. And when they weren't scoring 35, 38 points, they weren't winning. Right. And then uh, one last note of, of news here before we get into our, our trivia question. North Dakota State, ho-hum, ninth national championship in 11 years. And it was all over Twitter, the argument between expanding the playoff and, you know, people have claimed that the FCS level has had it right. But then if you're looking for parity, North Dakota State has owned FCS in the last decade, in fact, more than a decade. So that's their third different head coach with multiple national championships at that level. At what point do we see the Bison make the jump to FBS, I would have to think that it's got to be in the next three years. Um, and and I know that it's a small school, it's a small location, but they've got the fan base and there's no pro sports. So that's really all there is out there. I think that it would make sense. Uh, Sully, what do you think about the Bison possibly coming up in the next three years? Yeah, I mean, I, what I would love to see them is test the water and, and maybe schedule some of these games and just see how they fare. I mean, you know, the big thing is they're going to have to have the facilities to be able to accommodate you know, because sure. even a lot of these group of five schools have the right facilities uh, to, to play at that level. Uh, you know, they're going to be going up against the Boise. If they're going to be going up against the Wyoming, you know, those those are some pretty big time facilities. So maybe I'm picking two of the bigger schools. But, uh, you know, any any of those group of five teams, I mean, they all have pretty good stadiums because they get some pretty good fan bases. They get, you know, good weight rooms, good facilities at the school. Uh, I, I don't know what the facilities look like out there, but if they're going to have to step it up and at least match what those other schools are doing, if they're going to make that move, because, you know, that's a big thing that gets, you know, recruits there is when they get to campus and they're wowed because they, they go walk in and they see a game where there's still 40,000 people there, or they go to campus and they see how great the weight room is. If, uh, if their, you know, facilities can match it, then I don't see any reason why they shouldn't. Sure. Wax quick thought on, on NDSU. Um, I think a natural place for them to go would be the Mountain West, uh, at least early. If they're going to start as a group of five team, the better match would be the Big 12, but that might be biting off a little bit more than they can chew. Um, The problem is, and Sully kind of hit on it, their capacity is less than 20,000. So 
I don't know if that would fit in the context of um, FBS. It could, I mean, I know that there are some smaller stadiums in the group of five, um, like Rice and a few places might hold like 30 or 28, but less than 20. I, I do think that there is an attendance requirement for you to move up. So, right. and I don't know that they can extend, expand the Fargo Dome because it's an indoor stadium. So that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. I mean, if, if at least if they had an outdoor stadium, you could build up and out, but they're basically going to have to build a new facility. And then my yeah, next question so. is, is there any, is there any like um, rich benefactors out there who would pull everything together and say, it's okay, we'll throw out the hundreds of millions of dollars to scrap the Fargo Dome and either build a new dome or build an outdoor stadium. And that might be a, uh, an advantage that they could have when, if they get people to come play at their place and how cold and frigid it can get out there. So things to think. Yeah. About. I mean, I don't, yeah, yeah, there's I don't no one spending a hundred million dollars to get North Dakota to move up to the whack. No. <laughs> well, uh, let's, uh, I mean, speaking of whack, I'm going to throw out a whack trivia question for you guys. And, it's around the Georgia Bulldogs theme. Okay, so Kirby Smart wins his first national championship. Now, we talked about it earlier in the season. He was a player for the Georgia Bulldogs. Can either of you name his head coach? That's part one of the question. And part two, his head coach uh, at the University of Georgia won a Division I national championship. Can you tell me what school he won that national championship with? So who is his coach and what Division I school did his college coach at Georgia win a national championship with? Ooh. Then it would not have been Vince Dooley because Vince Dooley would have won with him, but he, he, he wasn't that far back. I'm trying no, to think. Do Dooley stopped coaching in 1988. Right. Um, so go through some Georgia coaches. And I'll give you a slight uh, hint. Maybe this might help. Maybe it won't, but he's also it wasn't a former. Rick. Rick was out. Rick was had him in the coach right after Right. Yeah, it wasn't. It was not Mark Richt. It was before him. It's not Ray Goff because he didn't win anything beyond that. Nope. Nope. But this guy took over after Goff. This was Jim Donnan, and I will oh. a slight okay. trick question. He won it at Division One AA Marshall, Marshall in nineteen ninety two. Yep. Yeah. Once so. you say Donnan, I knew it was Marshall. Yeah, that was okay. Well, hey, I, you know what? I give Wax a trivia question for knowing that he coached at Marshall. <laughs> that's when that's Marshall right. was really like ruling one double a. Yep. And then they made the jump to the Mac 1997, Randy Moss. And then they took yep. the Mac by storm and basically kissed the Mac goodbye after a couple seasons. Um, and I uh, haven't looked back since. So sorry to do you guys dirty on that one, but uh, you know, little Kirby smart trivia. And I found this out. So a little chappy trivia here too. He shares the same birthday as yours truly. And that's also the same birthday as, both of your favorite coach in Ann Arbor. So ah, Chappy, Jim Harbaugh and Kirby smart, all born on December 23rd, gentlemen. So there there's go. some and, and, trivia for you. <laughs> and I only like two of them. That's so. right. Well, that, that's incorrect. Cause uh, Juwan Howard's my favorite coach in Ann Arbor. <laughs> A little bit of facetiousness there, uh, Sully, but uh, I'm glad you took it. So, all right, let's get into segment two here on college football impact here on the CFP podcast. And we're going to talk just about last night's national championship game. We're going to break it down. So myself, Wax and Sully, we're going to give you our general thoughts on the game. And then we're going to give you a player that we were going to highlight, whether it's our player of the game, or maybe it wasn't the player of the game, but somebody who deserves uh, two minutes of our time to talk about and brag about. So uh, Wax, let's start with you. Give us your two minute uh, thoughts on you know what stood out to you about this game specifically whether it's x's and o's uh, whether it's scheme whether it's a, a a scenario in the game what what stands out in your mind from last night's uh, championship game given how the last few national championship games have gone with 50 some points and 40 some points being scored it was refreshing to see hitting going on red zone really working in the red zone limiting teams to field goals i know the field goals aren't sexy but i really think that it showed just how fast these guys are when the space gets limited yep. um the defense has the advantage and guys like nicobe dean and Devonte wyatt they were able to get out to the edge whenever Alabama wanted to kind of go to the outside. And conversely, Alabama was bringing a lot of heat with Christian Harris and Will Anderson. And 
I, I just it was refreshing to see defensive guys taking center stage because last year it was all about Devontae Smith and the years before that it was about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. And so we we really did have not had a whole lot of highlights for the defensive guys. So last night was kind of exhibit A for defense still being able to occasionally step up and win a championship for you. And that had to be something that really made Nick Saban uh, happy in in the deepest part of his heart, because we know he's a defensive minded guy and he was reluctant, but willing to adapt and change to this offensive minded game we have now. So to see that the defense has played out so well last night on both sides, really, uh, I think made not only Kirby smart happy because he won, but Nick Saban happy to see that, like you said, defense still can win championships. Sully, your, your thoughts on last night's game. Yeah, so the, the one immediate thought, uh, I've obviously had a lot of people reach out to me today to talk about the game, and uh, the pretty common denominator what everybody's talking about is, well, you know, if Jamison Williams didn't get hurt, and if John Metchie was there. But listen, Alabama prides itself on one thing, and that's next man up. And it prides itself that their second-string players can play with the first-string players and just about any other team in the country. And you've seen it time and time again that that's, for the most part, been pretty accurate. And yes, it, losing the number one receiver on your team, one of the top five receivers in the country, definitely hurts. But they had some guys, you know, pretty, you know, pick up some slack last night. I mean, Holden played really well. Bolden played well. I mean, those guys picked up the slack for, for Williams. I mean, certainly they dropped some passes that could have changed the game. I think if that drop pass there in the third quarter had been caught, the one right into uh, uh, get his name out. Yeah, right in the hall's hands. That, that would have put him up 10 nothing, and that game probably would have been out of reach at that point. Yeah. But listen, I, no, I'm not taking anything away from Georgia. I think what they did was incredible. So I'm not willing to go there and say that if Mechie and Williams played, that it would have been a different outcome because I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to believe that because what Georgia did last night, I think they were just destined to win that game. Uh, I thought that the first half was, uh, was a really good half by both teams, but I don't think either team really took any risk. And then I think once they started taking a little bit of risk defensively with Georgia, uh, I do think that, you know, you did hear – uh, Holly Rose say that as soon as Williams was out of the game, that Dan Lanning went up to the team and said, okay, the biggest threat's gone. Now it's time to play our defense. So I think in the back of their mind, that was part of the biggest thing. Is, it's not that Alabama was missing him offensively, but I think it's what Georgia was able to do. Conversely, on the defensive side, is now they were able to, to do some stunts. They were able to bring sign down more because they didn't have to worry about over-the-top coverage. Uh, and they were able to just play much more physical because they weren't worried about that deep threat. So that's my biggest takeaway is – I'm not willing to say that Alabama lost that game because of injuries, although I do think when they met the first time in the SEC championship, Georgia was a lot more injured, uh, obviously, than Bama. They had players out because of COVID. And last night, Georgia, I believe, was that full strength uh, yeah. when obviously Alabama was. And I think the biggest missing point that they had was uh, in the secondary, obviously, with Armour Davis and uh, Joby missing. That first touchdown that since met it through, I think probably would have been picked off or at least batted down by at least the top three cornerbacks by Alabama. He just happened to pick the right defender to throw to. But, hey, that's the game, right? A good quarterback will throw to the bad defender. So uh, hats off to George. I'm not taking anything away from them. They deserve that victory. Um, and I'm certainly not willing to go there and say that they won because Alabama was shorthanded because that's, that's not fair to what Georgia earned this year. Well, not to mention, Georgia really was – I mean, if you're going to say which team was luckier, quote-unquote, Bama was a luckier team. Georgia made mistakes. They had committed a lot of penalties, and they were like 10- and 15-yard personal foul automatic first down penalties. Uh, Stetson Bennett fumbled the ball, but then, um, you know, they, they didn't give it away. There was, you know, the, the two calls that really could have turned the tide, no pun intended, but, I mean, Georgia still won that game by 15 points, and it wasn't because of – terrible um, that went against Bama and it wasn't because of lucky bounces if anything um, Bama beneficiated or benefited from some of those lucky bounces if you want to call them that and benefited uh, from some of those calls and I'm not saying that they were the wrong calls but Bama certainly benefited from them and Georgia still won the game that the way that they did so I, I'm yeah, with Jeff, you on the, only, the only caveat I'll throw that the only the only sour taste in my mouth after the game was that I just wish the game ended in one score. I wish Alabama was able to score on that last drive just to at least make it a one-score game in the history books. Yeah. Uh, because no matter what, I mean, I get it. That was the perfect story ending for, for Georgia's season because they won that whole season defensively. Uh, I don't think anyone thinks that Stetson Bennett is, it was, was a, an unbelievable quarterback that was going to go out and win games. But 
They, they won that season defensively, so it was a great exclamation point on a defensive season. But I just wish in the history books, because, you know, I mean, you know how it is, uh, revisionist history. People are going to look back and say, oh, Georgia won by 15, you know, when it was a two-and-a-half-point spread. I just kind of wish that the final score was more indicative of the game because it was it was a, a three-point game through and through. Yeah, and, and another reason I wish that it was uh, that they got one more score is because you and I took the over 52, and we lost that one, Sully, by a point. So just to recap our, our prop bets from last week's show, uh, Wax, you cleaned up, man. Um, you had Georgia minus three. You had Georgia – or you had the under 52. It ended at 51. Uh, you had Bryce Young under three touchdowns passing. Um, all of us got Georgia rush defense under 100 yards that got it in, in his place uh, or because of his havoc in just a moment, just a moment. And then uh, we all pushed on the Brock Bowers. He got that one touchdown catch, which I thought he was going to get. Um, I took the under. You guys took the over, and he, he ended at one. So that was a push. But, Wax, congrats on, on all your picks there, man. But, yeah, Sully, if they got one more field goal, you and I would have at least had that category over Wax. So. Yeah, and how about two failed two-point conversions? I mean, that, that should have been over all day. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, And a blocked field goal. That was, that was an absolute better's yeah. nightmare. Yes, uh, no kidding. Well, uh, so we talked about, uh, you know, some of the players to highlight. I'm going to kind of parlay this two into one. So my general thought, I'm happy for the story of Stetson Bennett. I felt bad for the guy all year, not that he needed any sympathy and not that he was looking for it. But, I mean, you talk about somebody who has – literally had to climb the road multiple times with nobody giving him any respect. I mean, he was, when we started this year, when we were talking about Clemson versus Georgia, he was fourth on the depth chart. Nobody gave him a shot to even sniff top two. It was two hot incoming freshmen that were supposed to maybe challenge uh, JT Daniels for that starting spot. And then, uh, you know, Bennett loses to Alabama last year. He loses in the SEC championship. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't feel sorry for himself. He doesn't uh, complain about it. He just goes out and has a 17 of 26 performance, 65% completion percentage against a very, very, very good, very athletic defense, 224 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Um, and he's a fifth year red shirt. So I'm wondering with the COVID year, is he going to try and come back next year? Or, I mean, honestly, if I were him, I would let this be my swan song what better way to go out and say this was my last game and this is how I ended it? Because you know that if he does come back next year, he is going to be in a competition for that top spot, and he may even lose it um, with one slip-up. But I'm just happy for Stetson Bennett because you guys know that I'm a big fan of the underdog, um, sure. and, and this is one of the best underdog stories that there are, that there is. Well, he did say that um, they asked him what he's going to do. He said he's definitely playing college football next year. But then he he kind of stuttered a little bit into saying that, He's leaving the decision up to the staff in Georgia, and he's not sure where he'll be playing, but he'll definitely be playing. So kind of led me to believe that maybe it was kind of, you know, because JT Daniels stayed there and he was he was pretty complacent all season. Kind of makes me wonder if, you know, they kind of already had the discussion that it's JT's team next year and, you know, they're going to ride it out with Stetson because he's healthy and he had command of the offense. And, you know, maybe the writing's on the wall that he's not the quarterback next year and he'll be in the portal. Wouldn't that be something? That would be something, yeah. Now, in terms of players to highlight, uh, maybe just uh, a quick note here, gentlemen. Um, for me, what stood out was Christian Harris. We know we, we talked about Will Anderson, what a great uh, threat he was going to be. But Christian Harris, seven tackles, three sacks, two TFLs, and a forced fumble. So he had five Havoc stats alone, okay, three sacks and two TFLs. Dallas Turner as well. I mean, uh, SEC offensive coordinators are going to have a lot of sleepless nights between now and and uh, 200 and some days from now when they start the season, worrying about Will Anderson on one side, Dallas Turner on the other side, coming off blitzes off the outside or, or stunting inside on twists with defensive linemen. I mean, good Lord, five sacks between Turner and Harris alone. And then Will Anderson is just playing his freak ball on that defensive side. I think the, the, the trio of them maybe as a three-headed monster were the, the player of the game for Alabama, no doubt. Yeah, ca causing that fumble, certainly that, that, that looked to be a potential game-changing play. Um, I want to focus on the running backs, um, James Cook and Zamir White. Cook had maybe the electric play that really ignited Georgia when he took off on that 67-yard run uh, off tackle. Um, he got caught like right in the red zone. Um, and then 
he only had eight carries, but they were really kind of they, they gave Georgia a jolt. And then Zamir White late in the game, when they needed to run out the clock and be physical, he was just picking up seven, eight, nine yards, putting his head down, physical football. And it was nice to see that Alabama knew that they were going to run to try to run out the clock, but they couldn't do anything about it. And that's the type of stuff I like to see. Physical ball, let's just line up and run it and let's see what we do. And that two-headed monster really, especially in the fourth quarter, ended up being the real difference in the game for me. Sully, uh, who stood out to you, whether it's a player or coaches or a combination, um, what, what player or personnel would you want to highlight in this one? Yeah, you know, I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to go with the defensive coordinators from last night. Uh, sure. I think that Landing and Golding really just called one hell of a game on both sides of the ball. And I think that's kind of indicative of, of what we saw with the slugfest. I mean, some of the stunts that they were pulling, I mean, you know, Kirk Herbstreit was, was in his glory highlighting this because, it, you know, you really had to pay attention and, and kind of follow these guys because, you know, every time that uh, that there was a sack or, or a pressure man in the backfield, you had to kind of rely on the tape and see where it came from because they were zigging and zagging. I mean, that's really what I took away from the game is just how fun it was to watch the, these two sides just go at it defensively and, and try to outwit each other. And that really was uh, was tremendous football to watch. Yeah, and Lanning, I mean, look at this number. So Alabama was in the red zone four times. Uh, three of those four times, they were inside the 10-yard line, and the Tide only got one touchdown out of all of that. So three field goals, one touchdown. And that blocked field goal wasn't even in the red zone. So, I mean, you talk about stepping up in, in you know, when you really need to. That Georgia defense uh, and, and the scheme that Lanning called was, was outstanding in that area. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to get to uh, one of our favorite segments, Cover 4. We're going to hit you with four questions leading into the next season. And then uh, we'll round out our, our national championship episode here with a few more talking points. This is College Football Impact on the CFP Podcast. We'll be right back. And welcome back. This is College Football Impact on the CFP podcast. I am Chappie. You can follow me on Twitter at champion underscore lit. Mike Waxman can be followed at CFFM Waxman and Sully is at CFI Sully on the Twitter sphere. All right, gentlemen, it's cover four. Cover four. I told you guys, one of my favorites. I love it. It's so much to go into it. It's one of our favorite segments, something that we kind of toyed with and I, I think we've had a lot of fun with it and I'm looking for better things even in the uh, in the prep season so let's go and start with question number one is this a changing of the guard meaning will the the newly crowned champion coach Kirby Smart will he and Georgia be the next dynasty or is this kind of just a they're 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 good to get it this year because next year uh, they could be in some trouble what do you think Sully we'll start with you well, I'm going to I'm going to take this uh, a different way because, you know, we kind of felt the same way about LSU and I, and I get it the two completely different situations. So I'm not going to I'm not comparing the two of them. I'm kind of just comparing, you know, as a big flash win, you know, kind of dethroned Alabama that year in the SEC. They beat them uh, and they were supposed to be the next big thing. I don't expect Georgia to drop off at all the way LSU did, because I think there's a lot more stability within that program from the administration all the way down to the head coach. But I don't think it's. I don't think we can anoint Georgia as the next dynasty or the next it team. Uh, I get it; they just beat Alabama, but again, they're one and one against Alabama this season, right? Alabama still won the SEC championship. I think Georgia's going to have to get back to the national championship at least once in the next two years, win again. Otherwise, Alabama still has won a national championship every other year. So, if trends continue and they win again next year, I mean, now you're going to have Bryce Young and Will Anderson one year older. Um, Georgia still has a lot of talent coming back. Uh, there's a lot of questions around their quarterback. I'm not sure which of the running backs are coming back. Um, but I think that it's, it's a little too early to anoint them as the next big team or the next dynasty. Wax, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it was a great win and I think Georgia is going to hang around, but it is hard to be a dynasty, which is why it's so amazing what Nick Saban has done. But I mean, Georgia is, it has a bunch of talent. But so does Alabama. Ohio State should be better defensively next year, so they're going to be right there. You've got a few teams that are up and coming, even in the SEC, with Texas A&M having a great recruiting class, um, Florida changing coaches with Billy Napier, Kentucky's on the way up. So I think it's going to be hard for them 
to be a dynasty unless they, as Sully said, get to the title game next year and either win it or become a perennial fixture in the CFP. I mean, maybe Clemson gets back next year. Maybe this was a one-year blip. Maybe it's the beginning of a slide for Dabo. So it's, th- there's still a lot of people out there that they have to consistently climb over before we can anoint them a dynasty. And, and hold on, real, real quick, too, Wax, what we also didn't even talk about is not only do you have to get back to the CFP, but, I mean, we've, we've only seen twice in eight years where two teams from the same conference have got in to the CFP. And it, unless we're talking expansion and it's still four teams only, you're still going to have to battle Alabama, who is the current dynasty, every year to get into the CFP. So I, I think that makes it even harder. It's not like we're talking Clemson, we're talking Ohio State. Like, you still have to – not only get to the top, but you also have to get higher than Mount Everest to be able to become the next dynasty, which mean be which would mean beating Alabama pretty much annually to get there. And let's uh, let's also remember that last year Alabama's recruiting class was dubbed as the best class ever, not in the last decade, not in the modern era, ever. So, um, and a lot of those guys did not really see a lot of time this year. They saw spot duty, but they weren't like prime players who are going to be a one and done or, you know, two and done they've developed, they're getting better. And, and I agree with you guys. I think that, you know, what you're going to hear and what you're going to see on Twitter and, and in social media is a lot of Georgia fans who are uh, going to be inebriated with the win and they should be. Um, and they're going to start throwing that out. But uh, this was kind of a question just to remind people that uh, while Georgia can recruit right there with Alabama and while they can play and, and they can win and Kirby smart has shown that, He's, he's making the process work. Alabama is still Alabama. And like you mentioned, Wax, Ohio State is not too far behind either. They haven't necessarily gotten to the top uh, at the consistency that, that uh, Georgia has under Kirby Smart. But they, they still are a force to reckon with and, and don't sleep on the Aggies as well with Jimbo Fisher and the recruiting that's been done down there. Now, um, that kind of segues into question number two. So we talk about uh, recruiting. And we talk about uh, winning on a consistent basis. Nick Saban's on contract until the end of the 2025 season. Do you think that he will get to 10 national championships? He's at six right now. Uh, Some people thought he was going to win number seven last night. Um, Do you think that that's a mark he's going to maybe try to get to? Or what's a number that you see him uh, landing on, assuming that maybe 2025 is the end of the road for him? Or do you think he's going to maybe extend to try and uh, go as far as he can? So I guess the question is, um, do you think that, you know, what's the highest number of national championships you see Saban ending at before he hangs it up? I could see him with four years left on the deal. I could see him winning two more and getting to eight. I don't think he's going to get to 10 because, A, that would have to be four in a row, or yeah. he would have to take it past that. And he's already 70 years old. I don't know if he wants to kind of pull a Paterno and coach until he's like 76, 77 years old. Maybe he does. I mean, he's in great shape. He looks like he's in his 50s. He seems to have boundless energy. But at some point, he's got to think, okay, I'm going to stop doing this at some point. And 2025 seems far enough in the future that that might be a good stopping point for him. So I think he gets to eight by 2025, and then he probably does call it quits at that point. Well, and and before we get to you, Sully, just something to throw out there, Wax. You mentioned Joe Paterno. Another name that came to mind for me is Bear Bryant, both considered to be two of the top coaches in college football history. Saban is probably above both of them, but both of those coaches passed away not even a month or two months after they retired, uh, which is a scary thought when, when you put the, the mortality into it. And I didn't mean to you know, bring it down and sober everybody, but um, as somebody who has read about and studied and followed the history of both Coach Bear Bryant and Coach Joe Paterno, that's something that jumps out to me. And both of them said and kind of made the joke that when they retired, they're probably going to die, and, and right. they did. So I, I, I'm just curious if that, thought comes across Nick Saban's mind because you hear that a lot where people are so invested in their career and in their passion. And then when they stop doing that, it's almost literally like their will to live is, is gone. So Sully, uh, pick us up here. I, I don't mean to be uh, be downer on us all here. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll grab my rosary beads as I, as I cover this point. Uh, well, one thing to factor is you guys mentioned six uh, national championships. He actually has seven because he won one at LSU. 
So oh, that's right. he's got yes. seven. He's got seven right now. Six with Alabama, one with LSU. Uh, so can he get the seven? Can he win three more? I mean, listen. If he's on a contract of twenty twenty five, listen. We all we all know he's got a lifetime contract. So that contract expires when he goes to to Greg Byrne and the uh, and the president of the school and says, "All right, I'm retiring." So twenty twenty five might be a number on paper, but it's kind of arbitrary because it really depends on Nick. So right. I think I really do think he can get to ten. I mean. Listen, I, I made a joke last segment that he, he wins a championship every other year. I mean, he, listen, you got Bryce Young coming back. You got Will Anderson coming back. You have the best offensive and defensive player in the entire sport coming back next season. One year big, one year better, one year stronger, one year now pissed off because they lost the national championship. They're the favorites already in Vegas to win next year. So let's say they win next year. Now he has eight. It, it's really hard for me to think that he's going to walk away uh, if he still feels healthy. Uh, because you're right, these coaches, it's not even just the health thing. It's just he, he would be so bored. And I think that he, if you watch that thing with him and Belichick that HBO did a couple of years ago, he's now found a kind of a rhythm in his life where, you know, before it used to be, you know, the season's over and he's already back in, in, the, uh, in the film room watching and, and recruiting. And now he's got to a point where he actually takes time off, right? He's got a boat. He goes fishing. You know, him and Miss Terry take time off. So he's found that balance in his life as he's gotten older. Um, because I think the pressure to win, I think it's an internal pressure on his end, but I don't necessarily think he feels like I have to win because I have to, you know, continue to put up these records. Uh, I think that he's now complacent enough where he knows I don't have to work a hundred hours a week for us to win because he's built up a good program around him. But with that said, I do think that there is a desire for him to have the most national championships, to have the most wins. So I do think you have at least another, another four or five years of Nick Saban coaching. Do I think he went three national championships in five years? I mean, there's no stopping him, right? I mean, what's going to stop him? I mean, he's always going to have one of the top recruiting classes because as long as you can go to these players and say that I can get you guaranteed to, to play in a national championship because anyone who's ever played from an Alabama has played for one, I can almost guarantee that you'll get a ring because every player has pretty much gotten one. And listen, here, here's the biggest thing, and it's one of the reasons why I, I, I admire what he's done the most, is you get guys staying with them for three, four years. I mean, look at Matt Jones. He waited four years before he could start. You look at Brian Robinson. He waited 55 games for him to get his first start. And then he broke it in an Alabama bowl record in, in, uh, in the Cotton Bowl because these guys believe and they trust in this system. Uh, he's building something there that no other coach can replicate because they truly believe what he's preaching. So as long as he can continue doing that, there's no reason for him to stop. And I do think that he will get to that level 10 championship switch. I mean, that's just astonishing, right? I mean, that no one's even going to get half of those. Yeah, and I agree. So, um, and I forgot about the, you know, counting the one at LSU. So, yeah, with seven, I think that in the next four years, if he gets to eight um, by 2025, I think that he might be a little bit more comfortable uh, stepping down. But if he gets to nine, which means two in the next four seasons, which is very, very attainable, if not more, I think that the competitor in Nick Saban, the fighter in Nick Saban is saying, I'm not going to end on single digits. I'm going to go for that number 10. So I'm going to coach another year and another year. And if he goes four or five years without getting that 10th one, then he'll step down. But again, you also got to wonder, does Miss Terry want him home full time? I mean, I you hear about some of these coaches when they get out of coaching, they, they sometimes can be um, unbearable. So maybe Miss Terry wants him on that sideline because like you said, he's got that balance and everything is good and maybe too much Nick might be too much Nick. So, all right. Question three, which do you think is a bigger motivator in recruiting today? Is it NIL or is it NFL output? Meaning um, do, do the majority of players when they pick a school, are they going based on the school that can get them to the big paycheck in the NFL or are they more driven now? Do you think by the, the quick cash in uh, name, image, likeness. Sully, let's start with you. What do you think? Uh, at this point in 2022, it is definitely the NIL. Uh, look, players players can get to the NFL from anywhere as long as they can play. I mean, sure. Josh Allen, you know, was a first-round draft pick out of, out of Wyoming, right? right? Out of Wyoming. So, I mean, as long as you can play, you, you can get drafted out of anywhere. Um, but you look at what happened with Caleb Williams. I think he's the perfect example. He went to Oklahoma because that was his best shot to be an NFL pro prospect. And what happened? He He's in the transfer portal. And what's the reason? Because he wants to explore the NIL deals out there. Because he's so good, he could probably play at just about 95% of any of the schools in the country uh, and, and walk in as a starter today. But what school is going to offer him the most money? And that's why he's exploring it, because he knows 
I'm going to get that million dollar check when I get to the NFL. I'm going to get a $10 million check when I get to the NFL, but how can I make money in the next 24 months of my life? And I think that's the biggest thing is these guys are now looking to the immediate cash more than what's coming down the future for them. Wex, what do you think? Yeah, I think it is NIL. I think a lot of these kids nowadays, um, while they definitely do want to play at the next level, I think some of them maybe are becoming a little more realistic and say, you know what? Not everyone makes it there. This is a way for me to make a little money. And this is also, this is actually, I think, going to benefit coaches because you may get an extra year out of these guys. Guys who might have left if they were a redshirt sophomore after year three, maybe they stay for year four because they have a good NIL deal in place and they're enjoying playing. And now, if you're only, say, doing like a couple of promo ads for a local supermarket, you'll go. But if you're getting the money like the, the Quinn Ewers and the Bryce Youngs, the million dollars, why not stick around an additional year? It's not, it's not going to hurt you. And I think that it will, it will lessen some of the roster churn at some point. Once it, once it really hits a sweet spot. And um, I, so I think that, that certainly from a player standpoint, they like having the immediate ability to cash in on, on being able to do what they can do. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. Like right now by percentage, it's NIL. So uh, there's a greater majority of players who have a better chance at making money through NIL deals and endorsements than they do at cashing in paychecks in the NFL. Uh, but, you know, an interesting thing to think about, though, is is it connections, too? And so it's kind of that, that old philosophical question of would you rather have $100 now or would you rather have $1,000 in four years? So by somebody who will go to college and maybe choose an Alabama as opposed and, and maybe they're going to be second, third string on the depth chart. Maybe they don't see the field that much, but when they get into the working world, when they are, are making social connections, the cachet that comes with saying I was an Alabama Crimson Tide football player. I played under Nick Saban. That's going to carry maybe a lot more weight than somebody who would go to South Alabama and no disrespect to the Jaguars, but, to make some NIL money in a local area there and get paid now, but then you're done. And maybe you don't get that call to a, even a practice squad in the NFL. And you say, okay, well, I played college football, but the, the, the third string uh, slot receiver, who's a wide receiver for Alabama, maybe a four-star three-star, uh, but says that I was playing for Alabama. I played for coach Nick Saban that might carry more cachet. So, um, you know, if, if I'm talking to my uh, mythical son, I would maybe have him weigh that out, um, you know, again, $100 now or $1,000 later in life. And obviously that's that's exponentially on a greater scale because of, you know, what you could make with connections and whatnot. So um, very interesting look at that. All right, question four. There's a lot of people who have been complaining, and I'm one of them, about the game being on a Monday night. Um, same thing with Super Bowl on a Sunday. Uh, but for college football – what is your ideal day, time, and date to play the national championship game for college football? Sully, we'll start with you. No, it's easy, and I'll make it quick. Saturday night, prime time. There's no other. There's no reason for it. Saturday night, I know, it, you know that's obviously a big uh, final game of the season for the NFL. But I mean, it, it was Dallas against Philadelphia, and Philadelphia rested their starters. Jalen Hurts didn't even play, and it, it was a blowout. So that game right there took precedent over the national championship. I get it. There's a lot of money for the city, the host city, for the whole weekend to host the game. But listen, you put that game on a Saturday, people are still going to go in there. They're still going to spend money. You may even get more people to come in there with more money because they're going on a weekend. But yeah, listen, I know so many people that, that text me in the morning. They said, wow, I, I went to see the halftime because it was so late. What happened? You know, I mean, that was a, that was an all-star game last night. And so many people missed it because the game had to be at 8 o'clock on a Monday night. No reason for it. It has to be Saturday. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on you with that one. Um, I agree. Saturday, 8 o'clock. That way it's a 5 p.m. kickoff on Pacific time. I think you do it the first uh, weekend after a, a full week after January 1st. So basically no more than 11 days after January 1st, whenever that falls. Um, I, I prefer there to be just a one-week gap between the semifinal games and the national championship. I don't really like the two-week layoff. I don't like it for the Super Bowl either. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Saturday night, sometime about a week or no more than 11 days, 10, 11 days after uh, January 1st, whenever that may fall. And, you know, Saturday is for college football. The NFL can take a backseat at that point. You're still going to make your money. People are going to tailgate all day. People are going to get ready for it. 
Um, people have made vendors a lot of money with football on Saturdays, even at 11 o'clock a.m. kickoff. So prime time on a Saturday night when the whole world watching, I don't see the problem in that. So Wex, what do you think? Yeah, I think it has to be on a Saturday. Um, the only other alternative is because people are so conditioned now for a Thursday football. Maybe you could get away with putting it on a Thursday because people would be a little less reluctant to maybe take a Friday off and have a long weekend. But um, that would be the only alternative. As far as a date, um, you could have it like on January 8th, like what the FCS championship game did. And I know that FBS doesn't care about stepping on toes. It would be nice if you could let the FCS have its stage. Um, This year, it just happened to fall that there were two games on Saturday and then all the rest were Sunday. But next year, New Year's Day is a Sunday. I don't think that they would have that luxury of just playing two NFL games and giving the evening slot to the championship game. So it's going to fall on a calendar weirdly once every four or five years. But I think people are so conditioned for college football marquee games to be on Saturday. It has to be on a Saturday, whether it's the Saturday after New Year's Day, whether it's moving the semifinals back a week to be closer to Christmas, which I know travel-wise families want to go home and see their kids. But a lot of them leave like the day after Christmas anyway to go to the to the site. So is it inconvenient? Sure. But if you're playing for a championship, you can probably live with it once or twice. So maybe you could play it on New Year's Day if you move the semifinals back a week. But either way, it's got to be on a Saturday, preferably at night. I like it. So all in agreement. Football is, is College football is made to play on Saturday. So let's get to our final segment, our pick segment. Now, this one's going to be a little bit different. We don't have any games to pick. Boo-hoo, I know. Um, but we're going to give you our picks for uh, various light topics here. So let's start with pick number one. Um, Sully, we'll start with you. Give us your top five teams that you rank them one to five ending this season um, today. Well, uh, obviously Georgia one, Alabama two. Uh, I still put uh, still put Ohio State three, uh, Cincinnati four, and see five's tough because I really think the Michigan was just such a mirage to everybody this year. So I'm going to go Utah. Utah's number five. Wow. Okay. Um, Wax, what about you? I am one who is kind of like the voters. I believe if you made the CFP, you should probably stay in the top four. So my top four is pretty boring. Georgia one, Alabama two, Michigan three, Cincinnati four. I'm putting Ohio State five. Do I think they were better than Cincinnati? Yeah, I do. But I think that being in the, in the playoff should count for something. So I leave the top four as they are, and then I put Ohio State fifth. I'm going to go very similar to you, Sully. I'm going to have Georgia and Alabama 1-2 for obvious reasons. I'm having Ohio State at 3. I think that they were a very impressive team this year, especially going against a good Utah team in the Rose Bowl, one of the best games of the Bowl season, if not the best one. Um, Cincinnati at 4 because they had a very good season, and I agree with you, Wax. There should be some merit in making the CFP. And I do have Michigan at 5 because they beat my number 3 final team, Ohio State, and they did it in convincing fashion. They, they, they played well against their other opponents. Really, their only loss was to a pretty good Michigan State team. Um, they throttled Iowa in the Big Ten Championship, so I think that they do deserve some merit there at number five, even though I have to vomit in my mouth a little bit saying that. All right, next question. Uh, Caleb Williams, where do you pick him to transfer to? Where do you think he will end up if he goes anywhere? Uh, Wax, let's start with you. Uh, Eastern Michigan. No, um, I think <laughs> if right. anywhere – If he ends up anywhere but USC, I'll be floored. I mean, certainly, I think it just came out. I saw a report that an Oklahoma reporter basically said that dad has indicated he's not coming back to Oklahoma. So I know he said that he left the door open. That's not going to happen. If he goes anywhere but playing for Lincoln Riley, I will be very, very surprised. Sully, what about you? Where do you see Caleb Williams going? He's muted. All right. Yeah, you know, for him for him to stay in, in Norman and now play for, you know, Venables, who's the defensive-minded coach, I, it just doesn't make sense for me um, for him to stay there if he has so many other options. So it's going to be USC. That's probably where the most money is out in Hollywood. You know, they want him out there in Southern Cal so that they can, you know, they can – you know, he can be all over the billboards everywhere, get his, get his pretty much walk of fame out there. So 
Uh, if he goes out there and, and, and balls out the way he did in Oklahoma, he's going to make himself a lot of money out there. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I'd put my money on USC as well, not only because of Lincoln Riley, um, not only because of the NIL uh, and, and the enticements of, of all the money and the cash that's out there, uh, but it just makes sense. Plus, Mario Williams, his teammate, is also in the portal. I wonder if he's also going to be a package deal and going out to uh, to Southern Cal. But I still wonder if he might stay at Oklahoma because of the fact that Jeff Levy is now their new offensive coordinator. Brent Venables is a culture guy. He might be able to work his magic and, and talk Williams into staying in Norman, especially seeing what Jeff Levy did for Matt Corral. I think that Caleb Williams is a more talented quarterback overall than Corral was. So if we saw what we saw from number two down in Ole Miss – I think that Caleb Williams could still stay in Norman and have a profitable um, career there. So, um, all right, last question here. 2022 early Heisman favorites. Sully, um, give us your top Heisman candidate for 2022. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's got to be Bryce Young. I mean, there's no reason to he wouldn't, you know, go back to back. I mean, he is the best quarterback in college football, maybe the best quarterback we've seen at Alabama. Uh, which is obviously saying something. I mean, he just has so much control and so much poise back there. You watch the game and the announcers can't salivate over his athletic ability enough. Um, now give him another year in the system as a starter to work with these receivers. Uh, I mean, you could see even last night, guys, that he didn't hasn't worked with a whole lot. I mean, he just found ways to get them the ball. I mean, he really is next level. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the Heisman, you know, voters uh, see what happened, you know, last night and throughout the year with Will Anderson and give him a lot more love. Um, I know they gave Aiden Hutchinson some love this year and put him into uh, New York City for the, you know, for the award ceremony. But Willie Anderson deserved to be there. He deserves to be there again next year if he does what he does this year. And, and I think it'd be really cool to see, uh, you know, Alabama kind of broke the mold last year with the wide receiver winning it. To see them do it now with a defensive player would be really cool. Yeah, I like that thought. I like that. Th I, I really hope so for Will Anderson because aside from being a great football talent, he's also a great young man as well. Wax, who's your top Heisman candidate for 2022 before we start that season? Um, certainly Bryce Young has to be in the conversation. I mean, he won it. He had a great season. Um, he's coming back. The, the young receivers he worked with last night will, in theory, have the entire spring to go through with him. But I just think it's going to sound like a homer pick. We saw what happened in the Rose Bowl. I think C.J. Stroud has to be, if not the favorite, right there with Young. I mean, there's not going to be an appreciable drop-off with Marvin Harrison and with Ibuka and with Jackson Smith and Jigba. I think Stroud with another year in the system, we remember, he came into the season, he had never thrown a pass. He's comfortable in the system now. His release and where he puts the ball, I, I, there were like four or five just wow throws he made in the Rose Bowl. And I think you're going to see more of that next year. So I would put Stroud, I would put Bryce Young, I'm with Sully, Will Anderson, and let's not forget a guy who missed a good portion of the season. I think B. John Robinson comes back next year with a vengeance and is right in the mix as well for the non-quarterback offensive position. Yeah, you were looking at my notes, Wax. I had Will Anderson. I had B. John Robinson that, you know, yeah, a lot of people forgot about in the last month of the season. Uh, Bryce Young obviously goes in as the, um, as the early on favorite. Caleb Williams, whether he's at USC, especially if he's at USC, I think, uh, because Lincoln Riley has a way of uh, working his magic with quarterbacks for the Heisman. And, uh, you know, Kyle McCord, he's going to he's gonna uh, replace C.J. Stroud anyway. So how could you say that? How can you make such a homer pick? No, I'm yeah. kidding you. I, I have Stroud as my number one, too. And here's the big factor for me. Here's the big difference maker. Travion Henderson. He's going to uh, provide nightmares out of the backfield as both a runner and a receiver. Uh, Ohio State has as deep, if not more, of a talented wide receiver room next year. Um, even losing Olave and Wilson, they've got a wealth and a, an embarrassment of riches up there in Columbus. So I think unless C.J. Stroud turns into um, Adrian Martinez and, and puts the ball on the carpet way too often, I think that he and, and Bryce Young are – you can pretty much uh, pen their names in New York City and start etching their names uh, in any hardware right now on January 11th. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good pick. Um, you know, not taking anything away from Bryce Young, but I just think that uh, there's going to be more talent around C.J. Stroud. And, yes, I will say that the Big Ten, he's not going to face nearly as much defensive uh, talent and prowess that Young will face in the SEC and, and some of the schedule that they play aside from their November bye week against an FCS scrub. So I'm with you. C.J. Stroud is, is my early leader for Heisman 2022 X. All right, well, 
that is going to wrap it up for this edition of College Football Impact. We talked about the national championship. Again, congratulations to the Georgia Bulldogs, your 2021 national champions of college football, and all their fans who have waited a long time. Uh, they've suffered through the heartaches in SEC championships, in playoff appearances. They finally got it. Congrats to all you and your silver britches. I want to thank Mike Waxman. want to thank Pat Sullivan and everybody involved with CFI and the CFP podcast. We will be back again soon, probably coming at you with maybe a one or two a month, but um, we love what we do. We're going to continue to throw it to you. Be sure to check us out on Twitter again at champion underscore lit at CFFM Waxman and at CFI Sully. This is CFI on the CFP podcast. Good night, everybody.